Section 23 of The World War. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jake Knopp. The World's Story, Volume 15, The World War. Edited by Horatio W. Dresser. Section 23. The Battle of Verdun, 1916. By Raoul Blanchard. Why did the Germans make their drive at Verdun, a powerful fortress defended by a complete system of detached outworks? Several reasons may be found for this. First of all, there were the strategic advantages of the operation. Ever since the Battle of the Marne and the German offensive against Saint Miel, Verdun had formed a salient in the French front which was surrounded by the Germans on three sides, northwest, east, and south, and was consequently in greater peril than the rest of the French lines. Besides, Verdun was not far distant from Metz, the great German arsenal, the fountainhead for arms, food, and munitions. For the same reasons, the French defense of Verdun was made much harder because access to the city was commanded by the enemy. Of the two main railroads linking Verdun with France, the Le Rouville line was cut off by the enemy at Saint-Miel. The second, leading through Chalons, was under ceaseless fire from the German artillery. There remained only a narrow-gauge road connecting Verdun and Bar-le-Duc. The fortress, then, was almost isolated. For another reason, Verdun was too near, for the comfort of the Germans, to those immense deposits of iron ore in Lorraine, which they have every intention of retaining after the war. The moral factor involved in the fall of Verdun was also immense. If the stronghold were captured, the French, who look on it as their chief bulwark in the east, would be greatly disheartened whereas it would delight the souls of the Germans, who had been counting on its seizure since the beginning of the war. They have not forgotten that the ancient Lotharingia, created by a treaty signed eleven centuries ago at Verdun, extended as far as the Meuse. Finally, it is probable that the German general staff intended to profit by a certain slackness on the part of the French who, placing too much confidence in the strength of the position and the favorable nature of the surrounding countryside, had made little effort to augment their defensive value. This value, as a matter of fact, was great. The theater of operations at Verdun offers far fewer inducements to an offensive than the plains of Artois, Picardy, or Champagne. The rolling ground, the vegetation, the distribution of the population, all present serious obstacles. The German preparation was, from the start, formidable and painstaking. It was probably underway by the end of October 1915, for at that time the troops selected to deliver the first crushing attack were withdrawn from the front and sent into training. Four months were thus set aside for this purpose. To make the decisive attack, the Germans made selection from four of their crack army corps, the 18th active, the 7th Reserve, the 15th Active, the Mühlhausen Corps, and the 3rd Active, composed of Brandenburgers. These troops were sent to the interior to undergo special preparation. In addition to these 80,000 to 100,000 men who were appointed to bear the brunt of the assault, the operation was to be supported by the Crown Prince's army on the right and by that of General von Strauss on the left, 300,000 men more. 
immense masses of artillery were gathered together to blast open the way. Fourteen lines of railroad brought together from every direction the streams of arms and munitions. Heavy artillery was transported from the Russian and Serbian fronts. No light pieces were used in this operation, in the beginning, at any rate. Only guns of large caliber, exceeding 200 millimeters, many of 370 and 420 millimeters. The point chosen for the attack was the plateau on the right bank of the Meuse. The Germans would thus avoid the obstacles of the cliffs of Côte de Meuse, and, by seizing the ridges and passing down the ravines, they could drive down on Doamont, which dominates the entire region, and from there fall on Verdun and capture the bridges. At the same time, the German right wing would assault the French positions on the left bank of the Meuse. The left wing would complete the encircling movement, and the entire French army of Verdun, driven back to the river and attacked from the rear, would be captured or destroyed. The plan was worked out meticulously. It is even reported that every colonel of the regiments which were to take part in the operation had been summoned to the great headquarters at Charleville, and that a sort of general rehearsal was gone through in the presence of the Kaiser. As in the beginning of the war, the Germans felt that success was assured. They had taken every precaution. Their resources were immense. Their adversary had grown careless. They could not fail. But once more Germany had counted without the mettle and adaptability of the French soldiers, their genius for improvisation, and their spirit of self-sacrifice. With such thorough preparation, the Germans felt that the contest would be a short one, as a matter of fact, the Battle of Verdun lasted no less than ten months, from February 21st to December 16th, and in its course various phases were developed which the Germans had scarcely foreseen. First of all came the formidable German attack, with its harvest of success during the first few days of the frontal drive, which was soon checked and forced to wear itself out in fruitless flank attacks kept up until April 9th. After this date, the German program became more modest, they merely wished to hold at Verdun sufficient French troops to forestall an offensive at some other point. This was the period of German fixation, lasting from April to the middle of July. It then became the object of the French, in their turn, to hold the German forces at Verdun and prevent their transfer to the Somme. This was the period of French fixation, which ended in the successes of October and December. The first German onslaught was the most intense and critical moment of the battle. The violent frontal attack on the plateau east of the Meuse, magnificently executed, at first carried all before it. This success was due to the thoughtfulness of the preparations, the admirable strategy, and also to weaknesses on the part of the French. The commanders at Verdun had shown a lack of foresight. For more than a year this sector had been quiet and undue confidence was placed in the natural strength of the position. There were too few trenches, too few cannon, too few troops. These soldiers, moreover, had had little experience in the field compared with those who came up later to reinforce them, and it was their task to face the most terrific attack ever known. On the morning of February 21st, the German artillery opened up a fire of infernal intensity. This artillery had been brought up in undreamed-of quantities. 
French aviators who flew over the enemy positions located so many batteries that they gave up marking them on the maps. Their number was too great. The forest of Gremily, northeast of the point of attack, was just a great cloud shot through with lightning flashes. A deluge of shells fell on the French positions, annihilating the first line, attacking the batteries and attempting to silence them, and finding their mark as far back as the city of Verdun. At five o'clock in the afternoon, the first waves of infantry went forward to the assault and carried the advanced French positions in the woods of Halmont and Cara. On the 22nd, the French left was driven backwards for a distance of about four kilometers. The following day, a terrible engagement took place along the entire line of attack, resulting toward evening in the retreat of both French wings. On the left, Samolneu was taken by the Germans. On the right, they occupied the strong position of Herbebois, which fell after a magnificent resistance. The situation developed rapidly on the 24th. The Germans enveloped the French center, which formed a salient. At two in the afternoon, they captured the important central position of Beaumont, and by nightfall had reached Louvement and Lavauche Forest, gathering in thousands of prisoners. On the morning of the 25th, the enemy, taking advantage of the growing confusion of the French command, stormed Baisonval, and, after some setbacks, entered the fort of Donomont, which they found evacuated. The German victory now seemed assured. In less than five days, the assaulting troops sent forward over the plateau had penetrated the French positions to a depth of eight kilometers and were masters of the most important elements of the defense of the fortress. It seemed as if nothing could stop their onrush. Verdun and its bridges were only seven kilometers distant. The commander of the fortified region himself proposed to evacuate the whole right bank of the Meuse. The troops established in the Wolf were already falling back toward the bluffs of Cote de Meuse. Most luckily, on the same day there arrived at Verdun some men of resource, together with substantial reinforcements. General de Castelno, chief of the general staff, ordered the troops on the right bank to hold out at all costs. And on the evening of the 25th, General Pétain took over the command of the entire sector, the Zouave, on the left bank, were standing firm as rocks on the Côte de Poivre, which cuts off access from the valley to Verdun. During this time, the Germans, pouring forward from Donomont, had already reached the Côte de Froditerre, and the French artillerymen, outflanked, poured their fire into the grey masses as though with rifles. It was at this moment that the 39th Division of the famous 20th French Army Corps of Nancy met the enemy in the open, and, after furious hand-to-hand -hand fighting, broke the backbone of the attack. That was the end of it. The German tidal wave could go no farther. There were fierce struggles for several days longer, but all in vain. Starting on the 26th, five French counterattacks drove back the enemy to a point just north of the fort of Donomal, and recaptured the village of the same name. For three days the German attacking forces tried unsuccessfully to force these positions, their losses were terrible, and already they had to call in a division of reinforcement. After two days of quiet, the contest began again at Donomont, which was attacked by an entire army corps. The 4th of March found the village again in German hands. The impetus of the great blow had been broken, however. After five days of success, the attack had fallen flat. 
Were the Germans then to renounce Verdun? After such vast preparations, after such great losses, after having roused such high hopes, this seemed impossible to the leaders of the German army. The frontal drive was to have been followed up by the attack of the wings, and it was now planned to carry this out with the assistance of the crown prince's army, which was still intact. In this way, the scheme so judiciously arranged would be accomplished in the appointed manner. Instead of adding the finishing touch to the victory, however, these wings now had the task of winning it completely, and the difference is no small one. These flank attacks were delivered for over a month, March 6th to April 9th, on both sides of the river simultaneously, with an intensity and power which recalled the first days of the battle. But the French were now on their guard. They had received great reinforcements of artillery, and the nimble 75s, thanks to their speed and accuracy, barred off the positions under attack by a terrible curtain of fire. Moreover, their infantry contrived to pass through the enemy's barrage fire, wait calmly until the insulting infantry were within 30 meters of them, and then let loose their rapid-fire guns. They were also commanded by energetic and brilliant chiefs, General Pétain, who offset the insufficient railroad communications with the rear by putting in a motion of great stream of more than 40,000 motor trucks, all traveling on a strict schedule time, and General Neville, who directed operations on the right bank of the river before taking command of the army of Verdun. The German successes of the first days were not duplicated. And indeed, the great attack of April 9th was the last general effort made by the German troops to carry out the program of February, to capture Verdun and wipe out the French army which defended it. They had to give in. The French were on their guard now. They had artillery, munitions, and men. The defenders began to act as vigorously as the attackers. They took the offensive, recaptured the woods of La Cayette, and occupied the trenches before Les Morhomes. The German plans were ruined. Some other scheme had to be thought out. Instead of employing only eight divisions of excellent troops as originally planned, the Germans had little by little cast into the fiery furnace thirty divisions. This enormous sacrifice could not be allowed to count for nothing. The German high command therefore decided to assign a less pretentious object to the abortive enterprise. The Crown Prince's offensive had fallen flat, but at all events it might succeed in preventing a French offensive. For this reason, it was necessary that Verdun should remain a sore spot, a continually menaced sector where the French would be obliged to send a steady stream of men, material, and munitions. It was hinted then in all the German papers that the struggle at Verdun was a battle of attrition, which would wear down the strength of the French by slow degrees. There was no talk now of thunderstrokes. It was all the siege of Verdun. This time they expressed the true purpose of the German general staff. The struggle which followed the fight of April 9th now took the character of a battle of fixation, in which the Germans tried to hold their adversaries' strongest units at Verdun, and to prevent their tra being transferred elsewhere. This state of affairs lasted from mid-April to well into July, when the progress of the Somme offensive showed the Germans that their efforts have been unavailing. On May 4th, there began a terrible artillery preparation, directed against Hill 304. This was followed by attacks of infantry, which surged up the shell-blasted slopes, first to the northwest, 
then north, and finally northeast. The attacks of the 7th were made by three divisions of fresh troops, which had not previously been in action before Verdun. No gains were secured. Every foot of ground taken in the first rush was recaptured by French counterattacks. During the night of the 18th, a savage onslaught was made against the woods of Avocourt, without the least success. On the 20th and 21st, three divisions were hurled against Les Morhomes, which they finally took, but they could go no farther. The 23rd and 24th were terrible days. The Germans stormed the village of Cumières. Their advance guard penetrated as far as Chatoncourt. On the 26th, however, the French were again in possession of Cumières and the slopes of Les Morhomes. And if the Germans, by means of violent counterattacks, were able to get a fresh foothold in the ruins of Cumières, they made no attempt to progress farther. The battles on the left river bank were now over. On this side of the Meuse there were only to be local engagements of no importance, and the usual artillery fire. Verdun, however, continued to be of great interest to the French. In the first place, they could not endure seeing the enemy entrenched five kilometers away from the coveted city. Moreover, it was most important for them to prevent the Germans from weakening the Verdun front and transferring their men and guns to the Somme. The French troops, therefore, were to take the initiative out of the hands of the Germans and inaugurate, in their turn, a battle of fixation. This new situation presented two phases. In July and August, the French were satisfied to worry the enemy with small forces and to oblige them to fight. In October and December, General Neville, well supplied with troops and material, was able to strike two vigorous blows which took back from the Germans the larger part of all the territory they had won since February 21st. From July 15th to September 15th, furious fighting was in progress on the slopes of the plateau stretching from Thiomal to Damlu. This time, however, it was the French who attacked savagely, who captured ground, and who took prisoners. So impetuous were they that their adversaries, who asked for nothing but quiet, were obliged to be constantly on their guard and deliver costly counterattacks. The contest raged most bitterly over the ruins of Thialmont and Fleury. On the 15th of July, the Zouave broke into the southern part of the village, only to be driven out again. However, on the 19th and 20th, the French freed Souville and drew near to Fleury, from the 20th to the 26th, they forged ahead step by step, taking 800 prisoners. A general attack, delivered on August 3rd, carried the fort of Thiamont and the village of Fleury, with 1,500 prisoners. The Germans reacted violently. The 4th of August, they reoccupied Fleury, a part of which was taken back by the French that same evening. From the 5th to the 9th, the struggle went on ceaselessly, night and day, in the ruins of the village. During this time, the adversaries took and retook Thiamal, which the Germans held after the 8th. But on the 10th, the colonial regiment from Morocco reached Fleury, carefully prepared the assault, delivered it on the 17th, and captured the northern and southern portions of the village, encircling the central part, which they occupied on the 18th. From this day, Fleury remained in French hands. The German counter-assaults of the 18th, 19th, and 20th of August were fruitless. The Moroccan colonials held their conquest firmly. On the 24th, the French began to advance east of Fleury, in spite of incessant attacks which grew more intense on the 28th. 
300 prisoners were taken between Fleury and Thiamont on September 3rd, and 300 more men fell into their hands in the woods of val On the 9th, they took 300 more before Fleury. It may be seen that the French troops had thoroughly carried out the program assigned to them of attacking the enemy relentlessly, obliging him to counterattack, and holding him at Verdun. But the high command was to surpass itself. By means of sharp attacks, it proposed to carry the strong positions which the Germans had dearly bought from February to July at the price of five months of terrible effort. This new plan was destined to be accomplished on October 24th and December 15th. Verdun was no longer looked on by the French as a sacrificial sector. To this attack of October 24th, destined to establish once for all the superiority of the soldier of France, it was determined to consecrate all the time and all the energy that were found necessary. A force of artillery which General Neville himself declared to be of exceptional strength was brought into position. No old-fashioned ordnance this time, but magnificent new pieces, among them long-range guns of 400 millimeters caliber. The Germans had 15 divisions on the Verdun front, but the French command judged it sufficient to make the attack with three divisions, which advanced along a front of seven kilometers. These, however, were made up of excellent troops, withdrawn from service in the first lines and trained for several weeks, who knew every inch of the ground and were full of enthusiasm. General Mangin was their commander. The French artillery opened fire on October 21st by hammering away at the enemy's positions. A faint attack forced the Germans to reveal the location of their batteries, more than 130 of which were discovered and silenced. At 11.40 a.m. October 24th, the assault started in the fog. The troops advanced on the run, preceded by a barrage fire. On the left, the objective points were reached at 2.45 p.m. and the village of Donamont captured. The fort was stormed at 3 o'clock by the Moroccan colonials, and the few Germans who held out there surrendered when night came on. On the right, the woods surrounding Val were rushed with lightning speed. The battery of Damlu was taken by the assault. Val alone resisted. In order to reduce it, the artillery preparation was renewed from October 28th to November 2nd, and the Germans evacuated the fort without fighting on the morning of the 2nd. As they retreated, the French occupied the village of Val and Damlu at the foot of the Côte. The success was undeniable. As a reply to the German peace proposals of December 12th, the Battle of Verdun ended as a real victory, and this magnificent operation, in which the French had shown such superiority in infantry and artillery, seemed to be a pledge of future triumphs. The conclusion is easily reached. In February and March, Germany wished to end the war by crushing the French army at Verdun. She failed utterly. Then, from April to July, she wished to exhaust French military resources by a battle of fixation. Again she failed. The Somme offensive was the offspring of Verdun. Later on, from July to December, she was not able to elude the grasp of the French, and the last engagements, together with the vain struggles of the Germans for six months, showed to what extent General Neville's men had won the upper hand. The Battle of Verdun, beginning as a brilliant German offensive, ended as an offensive victory for the French. And so, this terrible drama is an epitome for the whole Great War. 
a brief term of success for the germans at the start due to a tremendous preparation which took careless adversaries by surprise terrible and agonizing first moments soon offset by energy heroism and the spirit of sacrifice and finally victory for the soldiers of right end of section 23 this recording is in the public domain